You'll remember that last week we ended in verse 15. And as you're turning there, where we were last week is basically two men had been put up to trial. One had been put up to trial recently, and one had been put up to trial a little further in the history. Uh, You had Barabbas, who was a known murderer who had uh, murdered some men in the uh, rebellion that had happened recently. And then you had Jesus. And Jesus had been brought to trial uh, by some men that were a little bit envious of his following. He was claiming to be the Messiah. He was claiming to be the Son of God. And in the Jewish mind, that was complete blasphemy. That was uh, a no-no. You would never have a person claim to be God. They believed that the Messiah that God was going to send wasn't going to be some uh, God-man. They believed that he was going to be a, a, a political savior, as it were. And he was going to come and he was going to take them out from under the, the oppressive hand of the Romans. And so because of that, you have everyone seeing this Jesus who claims to be the Messiah, calling himself the Son of God. All they see is somebody that's coming along that's a false prophet. They see someone that's coming along and, and going to draw people away from the one true and living God. On the other side, you have the religious leaders that are, are trying to make sure that they continue to have control over the common people. They wanted to make sure that they had a following and so they didn't want to lose any people. And so uh, you had a little bit of envy going on. They had a little kingdom of their own that they were building, and they were starting to lose some of the people that were, they saw as the people that were their followers. And so they were a little upset at this, and so Jesus was brought to trial. But because they didn't have the ability to try him and punish him capitally, like we have in our states, in many states they don't have that anymore, but you can, they have capital punishment. We would have an electric chair years ago, but now they do like a lethal injection. But in the nation of Israel, they were not able to stone anyone to death anymore. Basically, as their law had given them the right to punish those that were evildoers, those who, that had broken the law. So because of that, uh, the Romans were now in charge. They had taken over that capacity, and they did not allow the, the Jewish people to do that on their own. And so because of that, they brought Jew, uh, Jesus before uh, Pontius Pilate, who was the governor of that area in Judea, and they said, hey, uh, this guy, he's claiming that he is the king. Now, in our culture, we go, that's no big deal. But if someone were to come in and basically say, hey, I'm the president, and they weren't, we wouldn't necessarily call them for treason. We left the country, England, for that reason. So, um, but in, in countries that have kings, if you claim to be the king, they will basically punish you because that is high treason against the government. You're calling to question their authority. And so because Rome wouldn't care whether or not Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, they, they didn't care. You know, they believed in many gods. So to bring another one along would just be normal. But to bring in a a man that says that he's the king, that would upset them. And so Pontius Pilate would have to do something about this. But as we remember from last week, Barabbas and Jesus were basically put on the same plane. He said, okay, um, Jesus, uh, you want him crucified. But as kind of a cultural thing that we normally do between you and me, the custom, uh, he said to the Jews, he said, I will release one prisoner each year at the time of Passover. So do you want me to release Jesus, who is known for healing people and doing miracles and bringing life, restoring people's withered hands, and uh, even raising people from the dead, like Lazarus, who was just right on the Mount of Olives near uh, Bethany? Or do you want me to release to you this well-known murderer? 
thinking that in their minds, no problem, we'll let go of the guy that doesn't murder us, that doesn't go out and kill people. But because the Jewish people didn't really care about whether or not Barabbas would be set free, they just wanted Jesus dead at any cost. And so they were willing to set free a murderer so that they could get rid of Jesus. Isn't that an amazing thing? Many people in our culture today, in the name of uh, you name it, they will let free uh, people that will harm them and their families. But when it comes to Jesus, they're very, uh, they'll, they'll scrutinize him to the death. They will basically say, you know, Jesus, you know, he makes me try to get rid of things. And, 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 but Jesus is always put as uh, in the line with the, those that are uh, bad people. You know, oh, you know, Jesus would be great, except, you know, he's kind of one way or, you know, my way or the highway. So I'm not really I'm all for him. But anyway, what I'm trying to say is that basically Pilate makes his decision. He makes his judgment. And so... Verse 15 of Mark chapter 15, Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. So he delivers him to be crucified, knowing full and well that he was innocent, and yet wanting to gratify the crowd, wanting to be a people pleaser. Take note that when we make decisions based on pleasing people, what it ends up doing oftentimes is it ends up making us make bad decisions. And, and Pilate here makes probably one of the worst decisions in the history of mankind. He takes Jesus and he puts him to death, though he was innocent, in order to please the people that were surrounding him. I also think it's quite interesting that many times political leaders end up really being followers of those that they represent. They don't actually lead. They're just kind of the, the least common denominator. Whatever people will vote for, that's what I stand for. And Jesus here... Um, it was all part of his father's plan, so it works out for us. Uh, I think it's interesting. You have the gospel in one sentence in this verse. Pilate released Barabbas, who many surmise had already been scheduled to die, and he delivers Jesus to be put to death instead, in the place of a sinner, in the place of a murderer. But I love what the Bible says in John chapter 10, verse 10 through 11. It says, Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me when he was under trial? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you, in other words, to put you to death, or the power to release you? I've got that power, he told Jesus. And Jesus responded in John chapter 10, verse 11. He said, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above, from his Father. In other words, God was completely in control of this event, which tells me something greater, that God allowed Barabbas to be set free, and it was his divine plan to let Jesus be punished instead. I love that because God knew what it would cost him in order to purchase our salvation, and he was willing to do this. But first, before he had him crucified, Pilate delivered Jesus to be scourged. Now, there were three degrees that you could be scourged to. Um, if In the Greek, um, the word that's used, and I won't use it because I can't pronounce it, number one, but the scourging that he's describing here is not just like a whipping. It wasn't like a whip that you would use on an animal to get them to go faster. This was uh, what they would call a cat of nine tails. And basically it was this whip that at the end of it had um, these leather strips that in it would have glass shards and metal shards. Uh, some people even say that it had like sharp bones tied in the end. But they were embedded in the end. And so they would have the, the prisoner or the one that had been condemned to death to put his arms up 
like this, kind of stretching out his back so that it would all be displayed. Because you know when your shoulders are down, it's not quite stretched out. Your skin's kind of, it's got some extra movement to it. But when you stretch your back out, your skin's all flat. And so they would tie the prisoner up to a pole, something above his head, so his arms were up like this. And then from behind him, they would have somebody at 45 degree angles, basically, and one on each side. And they would, by rhythm, they would take the cat of nine tails and they would whip and then when they would pull, it's kind of graphic, but those shards and the metal would dig into the skin and kind of flay it and kind of open it. It would be bare. It would be laid bare. So you can imagine what would happen if they had one guy on this side doing it. He would pull, and then the other guy would take his turn, and it would kind of cause a pattern like this, kind of making it so each piece of skin wasn't holding together at all. And it's incredibly gruesome, and it even pains me to talk about it. But it's the reality of what happened to Jesus. It wasn't just some sanitary thing where they nailed him up there and then he passed away. It was that he went through a beating, a brutal beating. And many times in this scourging process, the prisoner wouldn't even live through this part because they would basically be completely opened up. You would be able to see their organs. And so, you know, Jesus went through this whipping, and then after that, verse 16 says, Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. This was the whole troop of soldiers. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns. They put it on his head, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. Verse 19, Then they struck him on the head with a reed, and they spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Now this was a little game that they played with him. They weren't just going to mock him, but they were going to take out his frustrations on him. Some people even surmise that his beating was so bad because during the Passover, these soldiers had to work in the city all the time. Kind of like when you have a big festival in any town, all of a sudden the all the municipal workers, they're working all the time, right? They're, they're keeping the peace. They're watching out for fights to break out. At least that's what would happen in Farmington and Country Days. I didn't see any of that down here at the Fall Festival, but I'm sure that if there was enough alcohol or whatever flowing, that's what would happen. You'd have to keep the peace. And so basically all the municipal workers are having to work all the time to make sure that the peace is kept. And the Roman soldiers are frustrated, right? They're, who isn't frustrated when they have to work Overtime, they didn't have the choice. And so basically during that time, they would beat Jesus, not just beat him, but they would take all their frustrations and, and, and let him go on him. And then after that, they would take Jesus and they would take him up to, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but there was an Antonia fortress up there where they would actually, that's where they would look down on the temple at Mount itself. But these soldiers are kind of all pent up there for a while. But after this beating, they took him to a spot and they, they mocked him, basically. They made him look like a king. They put purple on him, which was a cover, color known for royalty. That's all the people that would wear it because it was very expensive. And then they gave him a reed and they put a crown on him. Now, did Jesus deserve a crown? Absolutely. He was the king. He is the king. He's the king of kings and he always will be. But they put this crown of thorns on him. They pushed it down on his head until he bled. So... The point is, is that they mocked him completely. Not only did they mock his kingship, but they also mocked that he was Lord, that he claimed to be God. They worshipped him. 
I would put it in quotes, they worshipped him. They basically said, hey, we worship you. And they were just kind of just deriding him uh, with their words. After this, after the mocking, after they add insult to injury, they take him out and they lead him to the cross. So here, uh, in, it makes me think of, because part of uh, leading him to the cross meant that he had to, you know, you, we always see the cross and we see the, the, the vertical part, that's the tall part, and the horizontal part, that's kind of, you know, it's built in. It's all one piece. When we see a cross necklace or we have a picture of it, it's always built in. But the cross member, the part that actually went across that his hands would be nailed to, was the piece that was made out of very heavy wood, and they would have to carry it from the point where they were tortured, basically, to the point where they would be crucified. And so to carry that thing would be quite a feat to do on a good day when you hadn't just taken all this beating, all this scourging. And so Jesus is going to, he has to carry this thing, and it was part of the requirement, part of the punishment. He would take that cross and he would carry it to the place where they'd murder him, where they'd crucify him, where he would be torturously put to death. But before we get there, it made me think of the verse that's in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, where Jesus had told his disciples before this ever took place, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, if anybody would follow me, let him first deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. You see, there are two different approaches that we can take in this life. We can deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus, or we can live for ourselves and we can ignore the cross. But you can only do one of those options. To ignore the cross and say, I'm taking up my cross, it just doesn't work. You have to do one or the other. Deny yourself, take up your cross, or live for yourself and ignore the cross. Now, many times we hear this term in evangelism, and they say, hey, if you want to follow Jesus, you've got to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus. Although it's, a great, it's great to rejoice for those who come to know Christ, there's also an inherent danger in not quite understanding what Jesus was saying there. You see, salvation is the beginning. When Jesus sets you free and you're saved from the guilt of your sins and you're washed in the blood of Christ, that's the beginning. Oftentimes, people think that that's all there is. I went to church camp when I was this old and I said a prayer and then it's done. But the reality is, is if, if your children or if a child was born, you'd say, hey, they're alive, right? And they are. They were born. They were brought forth from their mother in some way or another. And, and, and now there's this new life there. But if it stops there, you'd think if they were, you know, two years later, they're the same size. They haven't grown and they're still eating mother's milk. You think there's something wrong with this child. It's still a baby. What's wrong with it? Does it have a disease? But somehow in the Christian church, we think that if someone gets saved and then there's no growth, it's normal. That's a dangerous thing because it's not normal. It's not normal for a human baby. Why would it be normal for a, a child of Jesus Christ? So the reality is, is this isn't the end. Growth in Christ is a process. It's something that happens day by day. We learn to deny ourselves by not just denying stuff. Oftentimes, many religions get it wrong. They think, well, I will be more holy if I stop buying myself these things, if I stop going to this thing, or if I start, stop talking this way. That's not what he's talking about. To deny yourself does not mean that. Um, 
I have it in here. I know what it's supposed to be, but I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget. Maybe I didn't. Anyway, <laughs> when Jesus sets you free, when you're born again, and you're saved from the guilt of your sins, it's a starting point only. It's where it begins. From that point on, you're no longer of this world. You're born to a new kingdom. You're a child of the living God. But in order for you to grow as a disciple, you must learn to deny yourself. But how do we do that? Well, we must literally use his word as a light unto our feet, as a lamp unto our path. That's Psalm chapter 119, verse 105. And then when Jesus said, take up the cross, it did not mean like we often hear somebody say, well, that's just my cross to bear. Or we all got our cross to bear. They're, they'll talk about, you know, man, I had a really bad day at work the other day. Well, that's just your cross to bear. Or, you know, my mother-in-law is driving me nuts. Well, that's just my cross to bear. You know, that's not what he was talking about. When he's talking about the cross that we bear, <clears throat> these are just trials. Those are the things that happen in our lives, but they're not our cross. The cross, however, that he tells us to pick up is what Jesus saw as we see as our electric chair or lethal injection. It's something that literally will kill us. You know, Jesus didn't see the cross as this... Um, he didn't see it as this uh, kind of generic idea of dying to yourself. He literally was going to die to himself when he told his disciples that. So to deny yourself is to lay down your life, to lay down your desires, your plans, and say, Lord, what are your plans for me? You made me. You know what you made me for. I don't know what you made me for. Will you tell me? To deny yourself means to go, Lord, what do you have planned? To pick up your cross is to willingly choose to die to yourself, to those plans that you do have. And they might be God-given desires. Oftentimes we think that if God saves us, he's going to have us do something that we would never want to do. But the reality is he saved us to a living hope. We know that we have heaven. We know that we have eternity with him. But he wants to use us while we're still here. So the, the plan is to spend our lives going, Lord, what next? What are you calling me to? What are you going to do with me until I go to heaven? It means to give all that you have to serve him. And as a husband, a wife, a dad, a mom, a son, a daughter, as a student, as an employee, as a boss, as a neighbor, a neighbor, you name it. These things are all things that we can deny ourselves and live according to and do them to the glory of God. To follow Jesus in those roles that he's, they're God-given roles. So you see, to Jesus, picking up his cross was not some abstract idea. It was a reality that he was getting ready to face. But we must do this just as he did by surrendering our plans and following through with what he has planned, no matter what the cost. You know, I think it's oftentimes important to realize that sometimes when we're called to be a parent or to be a student, to do the right thing is always going to be death to us because it's usually the harder thing to do. You know, if, if some... <laughs> If you're taking a class and, and the teacher says, hey, I want you to do this assignment, or if you're at work and your boss tells you, hey, this is what I want you to do today, and you decide you're going to do it, and then you screw up and you do it wrong, to die to yourself means that you tell your boss, hey, I screwed up, rather than glossing over it and saying, hey, I did a great job, even though you know, they may not notice if you screw up, right? So do you go ahead and say, hey, I did it right? Or do you go, hey, I screwed up today, 
I'm sorry, I, I wasn't trying to, I missed the mark. That means to, to die to yourself because what do they see? What does your boss see when you say that? They see integrity. They go, wow, I don't have to watch them all the time to make sure they're not going to screw up. They're just going to be honest with me. I don't have to get a security can to make sure they're not stealing from petty cash because they're willing to tell me, hey, I screwed up and, uh, and I need to repent. I, I'm sorry, let me change. Help me. Anyway, verse 21. So back to Jesus, right? He's carrying his cross. He's on the way to the place called Golgotha, meaning place of the skull. And verse 21 says, Then they compelled a certain man, Simon Isyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by, they compelled him to bear Jesus' cross. That's interesting because it says that they compelled him. They compelled a certain man to bear Jesus' cross. Now, typically, if you're condemned to crucifixion, you were required to carry your own cross. There was no mercy. They didn't care if the thing killed you because of the weight, because of your whipping. And so the fact that they had to get another to carry Jesus' cross indicates the extreme seriousness of the beatings that he'd endured. Even the soldiers were like, man, this guy's not going to be able to make it. We need to make sure we get him down there. So then verse 22 says, And they brought him to the place, Golgotha, which is translated, place of a skull. Perhaps because, many surmise, the rock formation near there was shaped like a skull. Verse 23, Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. Now one of the few times where alcohol, we see wine here, is spoken of in a positive use is for those who are in pain and dying. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 6, six through 7, obviously, for those of you that know Proverbs 31, the bulk of it talks about the virtuous woman. But in the beginning, there's a little section there that talks about strong drink. In verse 6 and 7 of Proverbs 31, it says, Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty, and remember his misery no more. So this is a gift from God, if you look at it that way, for those who are perishing and in lots of pain as kind of an antidote for the pain, at least for short term. And so wine and myrrh is what they offered Jesus. But why? Well, myrrh is a substance which would speed the process and make the effect of the wine quicker. Matthew, in his gospel account, tells us they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. And when he had tasted of it, he would not drink. So vinegar was a sour wine common among soldiers. It was something they would keep around. And gall was a sedative or a stupefying drink. It would make you stupid. It would make it so that you couldn't feel pain. It was a sedative. It was made from gourds. Now, I don't know about you guys, but you know, just the, it always makes me, when I hear the word gourd, I think of that phrase, are you out of your gourd? You know, I guess it could apply to this. Are you drinking gourds? I don't know. But he says here, or excuse me, uh, exactly what the liquid and the chemicals were which made up this substance, we can't be sure. But we can be sure that the liquid was intended to relieve pain and as a narcotic or a sedative to dull the senses. Drinking this would have the effect of drugging a person, making a person less aware of his surroundings and the pain. Jesus tasted it, but he would not drink it. 
Now you would think if a man was being punished and he was getting ready to endure the cross, which Jesus is, that if someone would offer him some sort of you know, antidote for his pain, he would take it willingly. Oh, great, some relief, right? You and I, when I just had a tooth removed just about a month ago, and when they offered me pain medicine for afterwards, no doubt I was not saying, no, 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 you keep that for somebody else. No, I was like, bring it on. Give it to me. How often can I take it? You know, let me know. I'm going to use it as much as I can. Who likes pain? But Jesus would not take it. He didn't take this strong drink. He didn't take this concoction. But instead, he did it in order to experience the full weight of the cross. We see the result of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, For he made him who knew no sin, God made Jesus who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's amazing to me. I don't know anybody that would trade filthy rags for righteousness. So Jesus, he says, you know what? You're a sinner. You need salvation. You take my righteousness and I will take my sin upon me. Excuse me. I will take your sin upon me. And then he experienced the full weight, the punishment for that sin, the wrath of God poured out on him on the cross so that you and I wouldn't have to. I don't know about you guys, but I don't have any friends like that. I don't know too many people that are like, you know what? Oh, you got a speeding ticket? I'll pay for it. Don't worry. As a matter of fact, give me the points on your license too. I want that too. Just for you, because I, I just want you to know I love you. But that's what Jesus was doing. And we also know that this was a very significant part of our Savior's suffering. Not just a coincidence. It wasn't just coincidence. God works through ordinary circumstances. This had been foretold in Psalm chapter 69, verse 21. It says, They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. So you see this as part of God's plan. This was known to Christ as something that would happen to him at the cross. They would present a sedative, primitive perhaps, but an effective drug to dull his senses. But he would not drink it. He would not succumb to this temptation. Verse 24. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour and they crucified him. And the inscription that was put above his head, his accusation, what he was charged for, it was written above his head, the king of the Jews. With him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right, the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says he was numbered with the transgressors. And we've read that in previous weeks in Isaiah chapter 53. This is what was going to happen. <clears throat> and those who passed by, they blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And likewise, the chief priests also Mocking among themselves with the scribes said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Ironic because he had done so many miracles and wonders and signs among them, and yet they did not believe. But if he would have taken himself off the cross, then they would believe. Isn't that funny? We always just want one more evidence, one more jab at him right before he would die and take the punishment for our sin. But verse 32 finishes, even those who were crucified with him, 
reviled him. Even those that were right next to him in his situation, they reviled him. Now, it's interesting to me, it seems to me that everyone who could get a jab at Jesus was at that point mocking him. The soldiers, they made a sign for him. The robbers, they crucified next to Jesus. They reviled him. And though we know that later one of them noticed how he submitted to this punishment, even though he was innocent, one of the, uh, the, the prisoners next to him took the punishment and he said, you know, surely this man is a, he's a good man. He's a righteous, he's innocent. How can we mock him? And he said, you know, remember me when you enter into your kingdom, Jesus. And the other man on the other side, you know, he, he's still mocking. But Jesus looked at that man and he had compassion. He said, today you will see me in paradise. So that's amazing to me that even in that state, he was still having compassion on mankind. Now, something I was thinking of as I read this passage is that Jesus was definitely and I believe he was definitely capable of coming down off the cross, but he could not save himself, is what they said. But he couldn't save himself. Do you realize that if Jesus would have stepped down off the cross, that he couldn't save you and I? It's, they said there, he, he, can, he could save others, but he can't save himself. And the reality is, is if Jesus does step down off, if he does save himself, he will save no one else. And you and I, we oftentimes will not deny ourselves and submit ourselves to, to God's leading in our life. And to many times, what you look at is if you realize that if you don't deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus, no one else will have life. They won't see the love of God that's transformed your life. And so to deny yourself like he did and to show love to people like he did, you know, to be willing to be mocked in many cases. You know, I don't think many of us get mocked like this. But there are times if you live your faith in a radical way, when you'll say something and someone will deride you, how will you take it? Will you be okay with it? Will you just give it to the Lord and turn the other cheek? Or will you fight for your rights to be right, to make them feel small? Or will you just say, God loves you anyway? That's what Jesus is doing here. But verse 33, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that, they said, look, he's calling for Elijah. But he wasn't. He was calling out to his father. You see, when Jesus took on you and I, he took on our sin. God's eyes are so holy and pure that they can't look on sin. So that for the first time in his life, Remember, he had committed no sin. So for the first time in his life, he was experiencing separation from God that we deserved. God treated Jesus like he should have treated you and I so that you and I could be treated like Jesus should be treated. And that's amazing to me. So verse 36, Then someone ran and they filled a sponge full of sour wine. They put it on a reed and they offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. And then the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. It's interesting to me because what happens here is that God turns his face away from Jesus because of the sin that was on him. And as the wrath is poured out, Jesus experiences separation from God, which I believe was probably more excruciating to him 
than the pain that he was experiencing. It's one thing to experience pain and trial. It's a whole other thing to experience separation from God who created you. And for us, hell is a very real place, just as real as the torture that Jesus experienced. But the funny thing to me is oftentimes people think about the flames. And no doubt those will be torturous and real. And the punishment and the torment. But I think one of the most tormenting things for you and I, if we were to experience hell, would not so much be the pain, but it would be the first time being separated from the grace of God. To be in the, no longer in the presence of God, no longer experiencing any of His blessings, no sunshine, no light, just darkness <laughs> forever. We don't even know how to, how to fathom that. And so Jesus here is experiencing this very thing and he cries out and at his last breath, what happens? The veil that's in the temple, it's torn in two from the top to the bottom. But to us, that doesn't mean anything. We're like, okay, the temple's torn. The veil's torn down. What's that mean? But behind that veil in the Holy of Holies of the temple on the Temple Mount was the Holy of Holies. That's where one man was allowed to go once a year to make sacrifice for the nation of Israel. He was allowed to go in there at a certain time. And he was the only one that would go in there. He was the bridge, the bridge between man and God. He would go in there and intercede and pray for the sins of the nation to be forgiven. But even he, if he went in there and he wasn't properly prepared, they would put bells on his, his ankle because if the, the bell stopped ringing, they'd go, hey, are you all right? Because he could have died in the presence of God. So it was a very serious thing. But Jesus, when he died and he breathed his last, and he, took, he paid for the sins of the world, that veil was top, torn from the top to bottom. So that ex- experience means that no man tore it. And why do I say that? Because the thing was 60 feet tall and 30 feet wide. This building is about 60 feet in depth from the bathroom to the front. So flip that sideways. That's the height of the, the veil that was between man and, and the Holy of Holies. So if it's torn from the top to the bottom, that's pretty tall. They need scaffolding to get up there. But not only that, but the thing was the thickness of the palm of your hand. So no, not just any ordinary man could rip that thing in half. So this was a, it was a miracle. But it was as if when that happened, that God was saying, come on in. You can now enter into my presence by the grace of God through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ to, to forgive you of your sins and to wash you clean. You're now allowed into the presence of the holy God. That's amazing to me, right? Because you think of the most prominent people in the world and you'll never walk into their homes but God himself our creator says come unto me you who are laboring and excuse me burdened and heavy laden and I will give you rest be in my presence I want you here I want fellowship between me and man I didn't want there to be a division that division was caused at the fall in Genesis when we chose to rebel against God and God's saying it doesn't matter I want to I want to give you entrance I want Forgiveness, but I want it so that you can live in my presence. So verse 39, when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. And there were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the less, and of Joseph and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. The world had no idea what love, what true love, what perfect love looked like. 
And here what we have read about today, the torture, the blood, the brutality. And yet it was done with such surrender and willingness as Jesus showed that true love is willing to be wrongfully accused, brutally beaten, mocked by fools, completely misunderstood, and put completely to death by insolent and sinful men. Not just in vain, but so that the object of that love, which is you and I, will receive it by faith, would not have to suffer a punishment that is just as real, just as painful, and just as excruciating, though we deserve it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, and I'll close, implores us to run the race of life, this life, with endurance. But to do so, and be inspired to do so by, as Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you know what gave him the endurance? The joy that was set before him. Do you know what gave him joy? Knowing that you and I could have salvation in a relationship with him. That's amazing to me. That's love. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love, in a nutshell. So Father, thank you so much for that kind of love that you've displayed and poured out lavishly upon us. I think about the woman that took the expensive perfume and dumped it, broke the the flask and busted it over Jesus' head. And I think about the fact that uh, her gift was very lavish, but it wasn't lavish enough. We can't help but worship you when we realize what kind of love you have shown to us. And so, Lord, thank you for being willing to love us till it hurt. And Lord, I just pray that we would realize that and live our lives accordingly, not because we can earn anything or pay you back for anything that you've done, just because out of the love of Christ, the love that you've shown to us, what can we do but respond to you and deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow you in like manner to imitate you. And so Lord, uh, thank you for that. And thank you for the fact that we get to worship you as your children that have been purchased. And Lord, I just pray that you'd be with each person here today. If there's someone that doesn't know you, that they've never understood why you would go to the cross for them. Lord, may they just respond and and receive your grace, receive forgiveness, receive cleansing of sin. And Lord, we thank you that we all have that for those of us that know you. And we just pray that you would help us to walk in the light of that truth, to surrender in Jesus' name. Amen.